You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome, everyone, to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I am your host, Lisa Schneer, and unfortunately, my podcast partner in crime, who is so beloved to me, is traveling today, so he won't be joining us. But we have such a special guest. We wanted to make sure we got this recorded today or as soon as possible because it's a very hot topic. Everybody's been discussing the rapid advancement of technology and machine learning, often called AI, and how it's shifting the landscape for revenue executives. So to help us out with this today, we have a genuine expert. We have Jeff Pedowitz. Am I saying your last name right, Jeff? Yeah, you got it. Excellent. And he is an AI visionary pioneer, Forbes bestselling author, who recently released this book I've got right here. If you can't see me, I've got it in my hand. It's called The AI Revenue Architect. And because Jeff apparently hates free time, he's also the president and CEO of the Pedowitz Group, which is a consultancy that helps clients revolutionize the way they generate revenue. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time today and welcome to the show. It's it's my pleasure. I did try and take up fishing, but no, it just didn't take. So yeah. <laughs> hey, put it on the back burner for someday in the future. <laughs> right. Okay, before we jump into the topic of the day, Jeff, we like to start with a question that helps our audience get to know you and who you really are. And maybe, obviously, it's not fishing, but (laughs) we're curious, what is something that you're passionate about that the people who really only know you through work might be kind of surprised to learn about you? Well, I, I definitely am a big sports fan, so that may or may not be surprising. And of course, I suffered through another embarrassing loss last night. I'm a, I'm a Cowboys fan, so very long suffering. So I have to admit, I turned that one off before the fourth quarter. It was, it was pretty bad. Oh, no. Well, you never know. They might make a comeback. They might. I do actually. I'm a really good cook. So, and my kids didn't realize that all these years because I always kind of like avoided it. My wife did most of the cooking, but now then they come home. We're like, when did you, when did you learn how to cook? Amazing. Do you have like a favorite type of cooking, like Mediterranean or Thai or? Uh, you know, I mean, I love food. So I like trying different things. So like see a menu. Yes, it's all good. But uh, I, I'd say overall, Italian's probably my favorite overall. It's fun to make pasta from scratch. Oh, so good. Yeah, that's got to be a classic is the Italian food, any Mediterranean food. I'll be honest, food. <laughs> I will go back to. For the last year, my wife and I have definitely gone more towards Mediterranean food. So yeah, we a lot of Greek salads. And uh, interestingly enough, I always liked olive oil. I did not like olives until this past year, but then we had so much like Greek salad with olives in it now. Now I love olives. So you always acquire and change your tastes over time. Definitely. Definitely. I was similar with seafood growing up. I'm on the East coast of Canada, as most of our listeners know. And there were some things that just totally grossed me out, like mussels and scallops and clams. And now that I'm older, I'm like, why? I missed this for so long. Yeah, I still haven't gotten there on that one. I, I do. I love fresh fish. Everybody in my family loves like lobster and shrimp and stuff. I'm the only one. So when we go out for seafood, I'll have like chicken. There's still hope for you, Jeff. <laughs> if I could get there with olives, you know, you never know. Right? I love that outlook. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about your journey. Like, how did you end up here with the Pedowitz Group? And what was your career like? How did you get here? So this is actually my third business. So coming right out of college, when I was a teenager, I worked in restaurants. And so I'd always wanted to open up a restaurant. 
And so I didn't quite open up a restaurant. I did open up a Subway sandwich shop. And my dad and I ended up developing some territory in New Jersey back in the early 90s. So we owned and operated 35 stores. So that was actually my first career. But all those years in the restaurant business, I developed a really strong operational and process background, which ended up paving the way for some of the things I'm doing now. From there, I went into computer software. So I uh, worked at several different companies in marketing and consulting professional services. Then I owned a sales training company, so which was uh, loosely based on solution selling. So I did that. Then I was working for an early competitor of Salesforce called SalesNet back in the early 2000s. And what made them unique was they had a process engine that could build around any sales training methodology. So that's how I ended up finding my way over to SalesNet. So I worked with many of the world's leading sales trainers at that time. And then I was also responsible for generating leads. And I discovered Eloqua, which was the first marketing automation platform. And it was one of those, the skies opened and I fell in love. So I went to work there. I was the first director of professional services. And while I was there, I was teaching a lot of the early partners, a lot of best practices around demand generation. And I saw them growing their businesses and I said, hey, I can do that. So uh, I left Eloqua and started this company. And so wow, been doing this for 16 years. And really, it, it combines everything I love. I love sales. I love marketing. I love technology. I love business. I love operations and process. And I get to do all those things every single day. That's amazing. Yeah, there's something very special about being the master of your own fate and getting to dip your toe into all of the little things that when you're running one specific division, you don't necessarily get that opportunity. So when you're running your own business, you get to be your own SDR, CSM, account manager, everything. Dishwasher. Yeah, all those things. <laughs> I, you know, I honestly, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I'd rather be dead broke, but have a chance to define my future every single day, make my own choices than work for anybody else. So I will never work for anybody again. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. I often joke that I might be unemployable at this point. <laughs> you do get to get that flexibility and freedom. Amazing. And so kind of pivoting, Jeff, into our topic of the day, you were recently featured in an article written by Success Magazine's Alex Frost, Intimidated by AI? Don't be. Here's how to leverage AI to increase your company's revenue. So let's talk about that. What ways do you think AI or machine learning, and actually maybe talk about the difference between the two, can be harnessed to help achieve some business growth? Because that ties directly into the AI revenue architect, correct? Yeah. Well, I mean, machine learning is just a form yes. of intelligence. I mean, AI is a very big umbrella term. And uh, it's actually really been around for a long time. It was invented by Alan Turing. That's right. But for a long, long time, it was really in the background. It was used in manufacturing and it was used by actuaries, a number of different things. But, you know, with OpenAI's work on ChatGPT and this generative interface where for the first time, really, technology seems right. It's so accessible because we could just talk to it. We could type a sentence. We can have an exchange and we don't even have to learn any kind of software user interface. I think that's what's made this so ubiquitous and seeing it just come to life right before our very eyes as we give it prompts and it does things and it responds to us in real time. That's really given us this whole new vision of what could be possible, even though, of course, it's been around for a while. And now the arms race is underway because everybody's trying to get AI something into their platform. But, you know, specifically what it means for business is 
first and quite simply, it's, it's about efficiency and productivity, just like we use laptops and we have calculators and email and printers and all kinds of devices that, you know, we have our smartphones, of course, our Fitbits and our watches. And it just allows us to do more faster, particularly things that are highly manual, repetitive and task oriented. AI is exceptional at that. Now, when it comes to uh, creativity, love, emotion, intuition, AI does not really do those things very well and will not be able to do those things very well for quite some time. However, you can certainly interact with it. You can prompt it. You can guide it and, and it could stimulate creativity. But at best, it really it's a muse that can respond to the person that's directing things. But back to business. So first and foremost, all the manual things that take up time today whether it's researching data, analyzing things, producing content, uh, reaching out to prospects, writing proposals. There's a lot of manual steps in the sales and marketing process that AI can take over, automate, perfect. So you have 30% more time with your workforce as good leaders. You could redirect you know, your team to be doing a lot of value-added activities. If nothing else, spend more time with your customers. But once it moves beyond that, it's really then about not just automating the revenue streams, but it's being able to personalize the scale through a number of different channels. And that's more important than ever before because, oh my gosh, there's like every every week there's a new channel. You know, like it just think about, I mean, since the time that when I started the company, the smartphone had not yet been released. So using our blackberries, there was no TikTok that YouTube just launched. Facebook was three years old. There was no Snapchat, no Instagram. There was no streaming services. Netflix at the time was, you know, you've got your CDs to the, the mailbox. You rented it from, from the kiosk. <laughs> A lot's changed in 16 years and it's going to keep changing. Mm-hmm. And new younger generations grow up with technology. It's like really from our youngest daughter is 19 and she won't use Facebook because she said that's for old people. Yeah. <laughs> She gets all of her information from TikTok and YouTube and Instagram. And so as marketers, as salespeople, is we have to reach our customers, different demographics and their different channels. There's only one of us, right? There's only so many hours in the day. So if we can not only reach them, but personalize the message and get the right message, the right person at the right time through those channels, that's something that AI can really help scale. And that's what we all expect because we've now become spoiled by Amazon and Netflix. We want it how we want it, when we want it, and we want it. Mm-hmm. And so that's a critical important. And then the third area really is, is with AI, because it can harness so much information, it, it gives us the ability to develop new revenue streams. You know, not just relying on the typical ways to go to the market, but creating partnerships both inside and outside our enterprise, launching subscription models, new ways of driving revenue. And so if you can get a greater return on your assets, that's what any executive or leader would want to do. And then you can start driving really scalable revenue growth. That's so interesting. I've got a couple of questions about that. So I guess, first of all, though, while we're finishing on that topic, do you have any examples you can share of a company or client you've worked with, even if you don't say who they are, but like an example where they've really harnessed this successfully? Well, in terms of AI, it's still relatively new. There are certainly plenty of examples of companies that have developed multiple ways to go to market. Look at how well Salesforce has done at building an ecosystem with its app exchange. So what they've done really is, so they started off just as CRM platform that the innovation was having it all in the cloud versus being installed on-premise. But from there, they became a platform. So by developing more modules, 
and having partners and software vendors develop little applications that run in and around their platform, they become indispensable. And so now they drive revenue through all of these ecosystem partners, which makes their core platform that much more valuable. Then they can develop certification courses, content, multiple licensing models, right? Adding on modules. So over time, the platform itself becomes more and more sticky, mm. right? So that's an example. We all think of Amazon, how we shop, but it's most profitable and biggest business unit is Amazon Web Services, like AWS. Right. They actually built that themselves because at the time they couldn't find a data model that can handle the sheer volume of information they were running through their e-commerce. And so they built out their own capability and it did such a good job that they started to sell it separately. So that's an example, right? And then of course you have the Prime membership as a subscription, which is another revenue model. So they have subscription revenue, they have AWS, they sell advertising. I mean, these are all different ways and, and it becomes a platform of which you're monetizing it. And it's easy to say, well, of course, you know, it's Amazon or, you know, Salesforce or it's Microsoft. Of course, they're big, but they weren't always big. Mm -hmm. Amazon started off literally as, as an online bookstore to, to compete with Barnes & Noble. So it doesn't matter what your business is. What matters is how can you monetize it? If you're a chef, right, you can sell cookbooks. You can sell classes around how to cook better. You can develop a subscription model. You can sell coaching. You can do gourmet in-home preps. You can do experiences. I mean, you know, and so what AI does though is it helps you analyze different types of model aspects, right? And then you can mathematically predict which ones are gonna have more likelihood. It could start analyzing the data from each service and then help you shape and monetize that. When ChatGPT first came out early part of the year, there were some really good people that were writing blogs where they asked ChatGPT to say, okay, give me a business to start, you know, and I'm going to follow your instructions for, for 90 days. They set up a business and started selling things based upon what ChatGPT was, was telling them to do. And so it's a muse, right? And so if you're interacting with it, it can help you start to shape that. It's amazing. And you mentioned personalization, particularly when it came to advertising or like messaging. So how exactly is it helping to personalize? Is it taking things like I think about Netflix or Prime and like their suggestion engine? It's like based on your preferences, based on your behaviors or what you've watched already, I'm going to serve you this as like a 50 or 75% match with your preferences. Is that the same type of engine suggestion? Yeah. Now you've probably seen like when you go browsing for something to buy, whether it's for yourself or someone as a gift, and you start seeing the little ads follow you around for a couple of days. And that's been around for a few years now. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's a simplified example of where they're using the cookie to be able to figure out what you like. And then they're constantly serving up those ads. Of course, the cookie's going away. But as businesses can take that first part of the information, and the more they can get you to interact with them on their site, the more they know about you. So what will start happening is instead of going to a generic website and you start going through the menus looking for something, the website should be able to just speak to you. It knows what you want, what you need. And instead of having the whole menu, you'll have something that's much more contextual based upon what it already anticipates that you're looking for. Browsers will change in, in terms of search engine. Today, we're used to, as the people that are doing the browsing, okay, we search for something and then we start scanning down the page. And then, of course, as on the business side, we're trying to get ranking to be on the top half of the page because everybody knows no one's going to go to the second page. Well, with us starting to use Alexa and Siri and things to voice search more, that's changing because now it's more of a conversation. And then with AI, if you might have noticed, you play around with Google, Chrome, a little bit is starting to infuse 
you know, AI and it's starting to have like almost like a word cloud clustering kind of effect where everything you need that you might look for is coming up all at the same time versus a single link that you then have to click for. No, that's not the link I want. Let me hit the back button. Let me go. So AI is driving a much more intelligent exchange. And so that's where personalization will continue to take hold. An example I give a lot. Now, this isn't AI, but I think that it's a suitable metaphor. Is like when we go on an airplane and every seat has the screen at the back. Right. Now, the interface is the same, but we all are all watching something different within minutes after we take off, right? So the same thing's going to happen with all these different websites or if we're on Facebook or if we're on LinkedIn or a news site. And of course, they do that to a degree now. You know, if you ever want to do an experiment, just clear all the cookies in your house and then have one computer, let's say, for your your spouse and one for you and start browsing and go to any news site, MSN or Yahoo or CNN or Fox or whatever, and see what happens over a period of a couple of days. You're not going to see the same articles. You're not in the same layout, in the same order. All these things are using AI algorithms to kind of predict what they think that you want to see based upon what you've looked at before. So they almost start becoming a bit of an echo chamber, which isn't necessarily good in and of itself, but that's the capability. So now you translate that into commerce and business and content, and that will start happening also. Okay, so... Lots to take away here. And one kind of going back to productivity, as you mentioned, your your company saw a 30% increase in productivity at a, at a minimum. So with the hundreds of different ways you can use these tools um, and more hitting the market every week, how can other revenue executives ensure they're selecting the right tools that are going to help them hit that minimum productivity number, but also stand the test of time and like how they keep up with rapidly advancing technologies like this? Yeah, there's some similarities to what's going on now to what happened in the dot-com era. Many of these apps are not going to go the distance right? because it's throwing money at it. So caution is good. Control of experimentation. You know, have some funds available. Develop an AI council. Have a committee and kind of strategically evaluate things. And you can play, but do it in a controlled manner. But there are applications that are out and will be out that I think at least for this next year, will be the most valuable. So starting with ChatGPT, which is free or even at $20 a month per person for premium, there's nothing. You have Jasper, which is excellent for marketing content. And then next month, uh, Microsoft releases Copilot. Right. Will be AI basically infused into all the office applications that most people know and love how to use. So if you start just using their generative AI interface with Excel, with PowerPoint, with Word, that in and of itself is going to be huge, you know, for businesses in this next 12 months. And then you combine that with, let's say, a Jasper for developing better content at scale. That's going to get you through the next 12 months. You get more comfortable with AI as an enterprise. You dip your toe in the water with risk. And then you start with use cases. You prioritize what the most important use cases are and look for some quick wins. And once you start getting comfortable, then you switch to a domain approach, a domain basically meaning an entire department or a function. Like, hey, we want AI enable this entire product line or this entire division, this entire department. That opens up more end-to-end thinking about how to use AI without still exposing your entire enterprise. And not to, because I actually don't want to take this down a negative route, because I think people, we will all have to embrace this. But from your experience in these early days of figuring this out, what are some of the common mistakes that the audience could try to avoid (laughs) based on what you've seen happen? 
Yeah, I mean, one, not putting in, first of all, any kind of policy or guidelines for how to use AI internally. Yeah. So then you have a case where basically the inmates are running the asylum and all kinds of potential private status are getting out there. So you definitely want to take some time to think about how you want to govern and manage this. Not really having any kind of clear direction, so or even taking the time to get educated. So this is something that executives should spend some time trying to build some general awareness of what is possible and, and what they can and shouldn't be doing. A lack of defining clear objectives or key KPIs on how you want to measure success. You know, that's another one. A huge one is not taking the time to get your data right. You know, so at the end of the day, for all the talk about AI, it's still just software, powerful software, but it runs on data. So if you want the machine to make decisions and analyze and do things, but your data is crap, well, you're going to get crap out. And so if you've been ignoring your data, which many businesses do, they just yeah. try and get more data, but they never really clean up what they have. You're going to be disappointed mm. with what AI is going to do for you. So you're setting yourself up for failure from the get-go. So like one of the first exercises you should even undertake is clean up some of that data. Yeah. You develop predictive models or automate anything if your data is missing or broken. So garbage in is garbage out. So it takes discipline. I mean, look, Sure. We all want to have great, successful businesses that just run and scale. Well, if it were that easy, we'd all be doing it by now, even without AI. It does take work. It takes focus. It takes discipline. And to really benefit from AI, you've got to get the data right. And that's one of the really the first and most important things that you can do. And it's going to serve you so well in so many other areas, even without AI, just to be able to do better reporting, better segmentation, better analysis saving money on, on software license costs a lot, not all the vendors, but many of the vendors tie the licensing model to the amount of data that you have in your database. And then when you're squeezing budgets and you go ahead and you cut personnel and you cut other value-added activities when you could be saving anywhere from 10 to 30% per year on your license costs. Mm-hmm. So is that something that your group at Petowitz Consulting, do you help with that data cleanup piece as well? Yeah, I mean, it's, look, there's some, you know, initial like one-time things to do, and then there's ongoing maintenance and care and okay. feeding, and it's no different than uh, having a healthy garden at your house. Right. You can't just plant the seeds and never touch it again. You, know, you got to till the soil, you got to water it, you got to rotate the crops. So with data, you have to update it, you have to have rules, you have to have governance. And even if you have all those things in place, I mean, people change jobs, they get married, they get divorced, they die, like all kinds of things happen. And LinkedIn is more accurate, but even there, just not, not everybody keeps their LinkedIn profiles up to date all the time. I mean, I know plenty of people that left a job three years ago, they're still showing it, you know, like it's archaic, but it will get you most of the way there. And then you have to have other types of verification in place. Okay, perfect. I'm kind of just curious here because you are exposed to so many of these different technologies. Are there any, not that you have to call out names or any anything like that, but are there any that you feel are just a complete distraction and not something that's shiny, but as you mentioned before, won't go the distance that as a revenue executive, I really shouldn't put my time into? There are honestly too many to mention. The over 50,000 AI applications that are on the market. So as a, just as a general rule, I would exercise caution. This is one of those things where with maybe a few exceptions, the big guys are going to get bigger and stronger. So Staying with Salesforce and Microsoft and HubSpot and some of these big guys or, you know, looking for a breakout vendor that's getting a lot of funding and doing well, like a Jasper. You know, you have alternative vendors like Sixth Sense and Demandbase and Zoom, and they've already cracked that $100 million revenue number. They've got good funding. They're stable. They're growing. Those are the companies that 
they might not be doing everything that can be done with AI, but at least as it relates to sales, marketing, and revenue, they're getting a lot of it right. And those are the companies that if you were a betting person or an investor or just as a business, those are much safer bets. Yeah. Now, it never hurts to have one or two people set some money aside and it's okay to intentionally spend money on some software that might not go the distance because it can help you with innovation. It might disrupt something and it may go the distance, but you're not overcommitting to that as a company. Yeah, that makes sense. So pivoting a little bit to the book, AI Revenue Architect, not your first rodeo because you have uh, F the Funnel. I see it behind you there, which was a Forbes bestseller. What was your motivation behind writing this one and how did you get started on that? Well, our job, of course, as consultants and thought leaders is to lead the way for the market. And that's what our clients expect of us is how do we get more from our technology? And I've been playing around with ChatGPT since it came out. And I could tell instantly this is going to be once in a generation disruptive force. So even then started pivoting my thinking and what we were going to do as a company in and around AI. And so it was really important for me to get my thoughts down on paper and and get the book out because, you know, I, I really wanted to take a leadership position for our company. So I actually started writing it in February of this year. Wow. Oh my gosh. Good for you. <laughs> yeah. I also have to give credit to AI. My first book at the funnel, it took me six months from the time I first started writing it. I had help. I met with a ghostwriter and a team every single week. And it was six months from the time that I recorded the first chapter till it hit the market. With this book, it was about eight weeks. Wow. Yeah. And that in part is because, you know, I was using AI not to write the book, but to help me write the book. Right. Bouncing ideas, getting different things. It became in some ways my muse and my ghostwriter as I was pivot pairing back and forth. And I was able to start structure and get my ideas from my head to paper much faster. That's amazing. Oh my gosh. And so where could our listeners buy the book? Uh, right on Amazon. So uh, AI Revenue Architect, and it's available in both uh, hardcover and paperback. So thinking ahead to the future, what developments are you most excited about? And how do you predict sales and marketing will have changed now, like from now in the next 10 years? I think that we still need to be strongly customer oriented. Yeah. But I see us becoming much more strategic versus transactional. I think that AI combined with e-commerce and content marketing management and content management systems are going to allow the customer to self-serve. Mm. The vast majority of these things are going to be able to get the content the way they want it. They're going to be able to buy how they want. So, but I think sales and marketing, we're going to be much more strategic, like really designing and building the ecosystems and figuring out the right ways to orchestrate this kind of activity. And so if AI is driving the transactions, you know, we become our own architects, if you will. You know, we become architects of our own sales and marketing process for our business. Right. And so thinking about that too, what would be a recommendation for you for like helping to say future proof your careers, like not just for us who are already well entrenched in sales and marketing, but for those coming out of university and thinking about their future, are there some things that you would really recommend like leaning into to help get there? Yeah, you should definitely get familiar with conversational AI. So familiar with chatbots, generative AI applications like ChatGPT or BARD. And of course, Copilot coming out will have that, those capabilities. There's a lot of talk about AI replacing jobs. And that will be true to a degree of lower level jobs that are highly task oriented and repetitive. But what will more likely than happen is you're going to lose your job to someone that knows and can embrace AI better than you. 
Mm. So if you're in sales and marketing, you're going to get replaced by a, a sales and marketing person that's more adept and skilled at using AI and technology than you are. Ah, good. Okay. Well, I would imagine, I don't know this for a fact, but I would imagine that there's already curriculum that are teaching future marketers and salespeople how to use AI to to be more productive. So those people coming out of those programs will be lapping us if we don't also stay up to date. <laughs> you know, the one constant is change. Mm -hmm. So it's constantly evolving. I mean, look, when I started my career, not to date myself too much, but there wasn't any internet. Yeah. No email. There was no social media. There were no cell phones. Mm -hmm. And that's been about over 30 years. Yeah. That's not a lot of time. No, it's not really. And so there's been a lot of change in 30 years, and there's going to be a lot more change in, in the next 30 years. I will say that relationships really matter. And the best sales and marketing people are the ones that are the best at building and maintaining relationships with customers. You know, you have to have a high degree of emotional intelligence. That's really important. And if you're not born with it or have it, it is something that you can work on and develop. I don't think that you necessarily have to be an expert in technology, but you have to be comfortable in using it and embracing it to help you do your job better. Yep. And to realize that really over all these years, it's never like customers wanted to have exchanges with a salesperson. They just didn't have a choice. Mm. Now they do. And even before AI came along, Customers were moving farther and farther into their purchase cycle before engaging with a salesperson. AI just makes that even more possible. So if I don't have to talk to a salesperson, but I can get all my information, I can do my comparisons, I can check references, I can even go buy my contract online hmm. and I don't have to talk to anybody, that would be my preference, right? Because I want to do it like I do it with Amazon. It's not going to be really a lot different. I mean, Unless we specifically want help when we go to a store in the mall, don't we all bristle? Like when someone comes up, like, hey, can I help you? Like, I just walked in this, like, just leave me alone. Like, I just want, I want to be able to figure this out. And I think we're like that online as well. You know, we just want to be able to figure it out for ourselves. Yeah. And so maybe this is a hot button question, but it's something that's come up recently on other podcasts we've been recording, talking about the future of the SDR role. And is there a future for the SDR role? And it, knowing that it's a not a fit for every company, and that it shouldn't be a given when you're building a company, there shouldn't just be this understanding that you're absolutely going to need an SDR team. But looking at the future of this personalization and buyers like leading their own way, how do you feel about what's your opinion on that role as far as that prospecting goes? I think it's a role that goes away. Yeah. Honestly, AI and chatbots can do everything an SDR can do, and it can do it better, it can do it more cost effectively. So for all the SDRs that are, we'll settle the debate of who should own the SDRs, marketing or sales, because that's an endless battle of like where that's your report, like inside that. Mm -hmm. I honestly see that going away. Yeah. And I think the role of sales will move more to like a strategic account manager, someone that could kind of really manage the account yeah. versus the transaction. I think that most selling is going to be customer initiated. Yeah. Sure cold calling, people still try it, but it's pushing the string uphill. It's, it's just not very effective. No, I know. It's uh, it's interesting because I'm working with a client right now that just implemented one of the dialers. And as it turns out, it's a global client. So there's a number of countries where it's not even usable. And that type of data privacy collection data, you know, everything is not going away either. So like to be able to automate some of these transactions, like data collection and, and use that as a sales automation tool is also getting harder and harder. So you're kind of hamstringing yourself before you even get started. <laughs> Well, and it's an arms race, and then we put in spam blockers, and we have blockers on our phones, and 
nobody wants to talk to anybody anymore. This year, I wrote an article about this a couple of months ago, but it's the year of ghosting. No one wants to talk to anybody. Like, you know, they just they don't want to get back to you until they're finally absolutely ready. They just don't want to waste time. So I think you're, you're calling it to avoid. Mm-hmm. And a much better way of doing it is truly understanding what your customer prospect needs yeah. and giving it to them before they think about it. Right. And that's some form of content. Could be educational, could be comparison, it could be a calculator, it could be case studies. I mean, number of different options there. But how can I help you be more successful in your job? If I can do that in an unintrusive but helpful way, mm-hmm. that builds trust and credibility. And yeah, I, I think more work needs to be done on the advocacy referral loyalty side. Yeah. So let's exercise that muscle. Every company has some kind of recurring revenue from customers, but yet we spend almost all of our efforts on getting new customers. That's not to say that we shouldn't be focused on getting new customers, but it sort of doesn't make sense. Like if you've got more than 50% of your revenue coming from your install base, why do we spend a disproportionate amount of trying to get? And those are areas also where AI can help us. Yeah. When you think about once you create the raving fans, the people who already, like you say, they trust you, you, you have credibility with them and they can become the engine that helps you to expand beyond. We see it in what we do all the time with value selling is we train so many people all over the world and we create raving fans then wherever they end up we get calls and then next thing you know it's let's bring it in here let's bring it in here it's also a much more organic way to grow your business not like you say bashing your head up against the cold calling wall (laughs) yes absolutely because then who wants to do that (laughs) wasn't fun then and it's certainly not fun now yeah exactly well i think you've dropped a lot of gold in this podcast jeff we always ask every guest a question at the end of the podcast and that we call our acceleration insight so if there was one piece of advice business or personal that you would give our listeners to help them to achieve their goals this year what might that be it's probably been said over and over again but i'd say you know write it down but commit yourself to the steps you're going to do to get it which is one extra thing you know a lot of us will say hey i want to lose 10 pounds this year or i want to eat better right Okay, but how? And how will you do that every day? What are the smaller goals that will help you get to the bigger goals? So, hey, I'm going to give up dessert for a week. I'm going to give up my glass of wine. I'm not going to put cream on my coffee. Or I'm going to start walking 5,000 or 10,000 steps a day and then hold yourself to that. And the same thing can be done in business as well. Take the bigger goals and breaking them down into smaller goals. They're more achievable. Definitely. One of my favorite books is actually um, Atomic Habits by James Clear. Have you read that one? Yes, I have it. Yeah, that 1%. Actually, it's funny that it's what inspired me to start swimming. Yeah. So yeah, I was, um, I used to swim when I was younger and then it's been recreational for all these years. And so I really was trying to get healthier and hey, I wonder if I could swim a mile and then I swam a mile and then I can I swim a mile every day, 1% more, you know, 1% wow. more. So since July, I've been swimming at least a mile a day. Good for you. That's awesome. Right. You know, like, as they say, the road of a thousand steps begins with the first one. So, you know, you got to start it somewhere. Yeah, exactly. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Right. And yeah, it's 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 exciting. Well, Jeff, if any of our listeners wanted to continue a conversation with you around any of these topics, what's your preferred method that they communicate with you? I know you've got your website and things like that. They can LinkedIn connect there. They can reach out to my email, which is jeff at pedalwitzgroup.com. And be happy to engage. And thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much. We know exactly how valuable your time is. So really appreciate having you on the show. You bet. Thanks, Lisa.
Awesome, everyone. That does it for this episode of the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. Please check us out wherever you listen to your podcasts. That could be iTunes, it could be Google, it could be YouTube. We're on all of those places. And you can check us out at www.b2brevexec.com. Please share this episode if you enjoyed it with your family, your friends, your dogs, your cats. And if you like what you hear, please do us a favor and throw us a five-star review on iTunes. I am Lisa Schneer. I am not joined today by my beloved podcast partner, Carlos Noche, but he will be back soon. So wish you nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.